Hello and welcome to Cask Heads. I'm Jordan and with me is my brother Luke. Say hello at least. You know, you kids, you're on your phones all the time. I'm, okay, to be fair, I'm making an important alibi. That sounds so bad. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just texting everyone to make sure that they know that if something ever happens to me or if I one day eventually snap, that they have to say the craziest stuff about me, like I could talk to bats or I could it's breathe under I could breathe underwater, but only if I wore odd socks. No, that's that's kind of like evidence, maybe. <laughs> well. Now, if it sounds crazy and I'm coming to you from the different side of your ear, it's because we're on the other side of the recording things this time. I'm always on that side and you're on this side. No. And so, yeah. No, your desk. Yeah. I know. No, yeah, it was. I was on the right. No, because I, you no, moved. I had the no, you moved. You moved me off the green chair, which means that you would still be on this side of me. Mm, fake news. No, this fake is crazy. News. I've I've never recorded on the right side. This is all oh, the power. Okay. Just think, I get to I get to speak into that right ear for a change instead of the left. You know we don't have it set up like that, right? I don't know. Who knows? Technology's weird. So, last time we talked about colouring whiskies and how, if at all, it can affect the end product. We also looked at um, various views of different distilleries on kind of either side of the argument. And I realise it may not have been the kind of most definitive or divisive of views, but to be honest, it really doesn't seem to matter to me too much. I'm happy with the whiskey, how it tastes, and if they happen to colour it, well... Listen to the last episode. Have they not proven that distilleries exist? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yep, they've got archaeologists digging and they found the old bones. Um, and you imagine this, the, these old prehistoric distilleries and, and there'll be these little casks just bobbing through the Cretaceous period. And, oh! And maybe, maybe you, now, you stay still. you've done something my archaeologist friend Emily despises. You've mixed up archaeology and paleontology. <laughs> Two very different No, because things. it's a structure. I wonder about the structure mm. of the distillery. Paleontology, I think, falls under, like, everything from back then. Oh, really? So, yeah, I mean, when it, when it came time for me to sit down in my grand idea-creating chair, as I do, pondering on just what the episode was going to be, I decided to step back and talk about a particular distillery. And for those who are regular listeners, then um, the spoiler in last episode... Are you calling the shower your grand pondering chair? Oh, I have many grand pondering moments. Because shower. I know quite frequently you will run out of the shower and be like, I have an idea. A lot of my best ideas come to me in steam. When my brain is exposed to steam, it kind of like shakes the branches and the cool ideas fall out. See, I decided to take a step back and talk about particular distilleries we were doing for the um, kind of the original format. And yes, for the regular listeners, uh, the spoiler was dropped in the last episode um, that we're talking about the Tamdu distillery in Speyside. Note my complete lack of an E on the end of the pronunciation. Luke. It's Tamdu. Jordan. Tamdu. So we'll be talking about the less-known distillery, Tam Dewey. Mm-hmm. Okay. Read to me the spelling on the bottle. Uh, founded nope. in 1907. You just have to go... Uh, 1897, uh, by the way. <laughs> Sherry Oak Cask. Only the best. Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Aged 12 years. Distilled at Tam Dewey Distillery Space. <laughs> no E! Gosh! Yeah, but the thing is, I've pronounced it wrong so long that now if I pronounce it right, no one will know what I'm on about. Right. <clears throat> so, founded back in 1897, this makes it relatively new to the scene in the 1800s, given that the, the influx of distilleries were registered, and I mean, that's important to remember, is that a lot of these kind of founded dates we see on bottles, as we've discussed before, are often more of a record of when the owners 
effectively registered the fact that they were distilling with customs and revenue as opposed to kind of like illegally just doing it anyway. Like I say 1823 off the top of my head is when the Licensing Act kind of came into place and a lot of the distilleries started to register. So 1897, that's a fair few years. And to be fair, Tamdu, it was actually founded by a consortium of whiskey blenders and even benefited from the involvement of William Grant, who is... Do you know who William Grant is? A person. Some might say a human being. Some might say... A name that has been spoken before. William Grant founded the Glenfiddich Distillery 11 years previously, sorry, 11 years before his involvement in the Tamdu Distillery, which was in, uh, back in 1886, Glenfiddich was founded. are they a person? <sighs> I mean, no one was around at that time. They're a human being. Has their name been said before? None of these. I mean, what lies. constitutes a person at the end of the day? Before before he even started with Glenfiddich, he actually worked at the Mortlach Distillery in Speyside. So he's had a long, long kind of time, or he had a long time involved in the whiskey business, rather, before he got to this stage. At the time of Tamdu, he was a rather well-respected man. Also of importance is that when it came to Tamdu, everything had to be kind of the best of the best of the best. The whole idea was they wanted to create this spectacular whiskey. They actually got... Charles Doig, who was an architect. Why do you look at me after you said architect? Because I wondered if you were going to say anything about Charles Doig, actually, more than anything. It's a, re- it's a really good last name. He was actually a very famous architect, and he worked on several of the distilleries back then. Uh, in fact, one of the most important things, and this is why I know we've talked about Charles Doig before, is he was the designer of the pagoda roof that you see on malt buildings, which was first installed on the Dal Ewan distillery. Even to this day, is still added to distilleries, even though it doesn't serve the same function, and it is f- purely for aesthetics now. It is so ingrained with the appearance of distilleries, you will still see them today. Pagoda's the one that flicks up, right? Pagoda's, uh, not pagoda. That's what I Pagoda. Yeah, it's a good. Pagoda. I'm saying the exact same word. Pagoda. G. Yeah. Pagoda. G. Pagoda. G. Pagoda. It's not my fault you can't understand my accent. If your accent is wrong, then yeah, sure. I'm literally saying pagoda. What do you think I'm saying? Pagoda. No, that's <laughs> no, that would be pagoda, not pagoda. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said it. I said it differently. The distillery was built with several innovations of the time in mind. Only the best equipment was purchased. Location was really important to the design, and the distillery is situated on the banks of the River Spey, which is, in fact, the kind of reason why Speyside gets its region name. It's the bank of the Spey, the Spey side. The idea in its construction was to create the best whiskey in the world. A somewhat subjective goal, I think, but uh, fair play to them. You know, why not just set up for the top? You know, reach for the stars. If you fall, you'll have a no, really I thought it's hard reach for landing. The, reach for the stars, climb every mountain higher. Yeah, I go through the lyrics. So like, that's well. when you know the dreams will all come true. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, blast from the past. Man, 2012 was a wild year. You know what? The, the first person to phone in right now and give us the lyrics that we missed in between those two wins a million pounds. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, I'm sorry, it's gone. I'm, I'm calling you. <laughs> it's not gone through. Oh, that's the delay and decline. Sorry. Oh, dang it. So <laughs> I'm gonna leave a voicemail. Wait, I actually need to Google these lyrics. According to the distillery's own website, the founders raised the equivalent of twenty million pounds today which is a phenomenal amount of money when you think about it back then. What was that, like, three pounds back then? No, 20 million pounds back then would be crazy. Like, 
I have a sneaking suspicion they may have robbed a whole country to do this. Yeah, no, but I mean, like, how much is that? Back? Because mum will be like, oh, yeah, when I was a child, I used to earn one penny a year. Yeah, apparently back then, the distillery was purchasing some of the best sherry casks as well to come out of Spain, showing an appreciation and importance of uh, wood quality and management. Even back then, it's quite refreshing to see that, like, even, even in the 1800s, distilleries were well aware of this fact that good wood makes a big difference. Now, between 1898 and 1948, the distillery would see hard times closing and reopening only to be mothballed for 20 years. Mothballed? Mothballed, when you don't just close the doors, but you basically give up on the distillery short of, like, demolishing it. Oh, that's, like, such... That's the agnostic. It's it's, it's past people. the stage of like oh we're on hard times we'll close for a year or something like that. Yeah, but that's like that's like if you're not going to demolish it, you know, like commit is what I'm saying. Cost money to demolish. Commit, <laughs> commit to the bit, people. In 1949, one year after reopening from being mothballed, the distillery decided to embrace innovation and added Saladin boxes for their maltings. That's right. Saladin Slytherin came along. You know I don't know your nerd thing. You know Harry Potter. Don't even pretend you don't. I don't know Harry Potter. You know Slytherin. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know who Saladin is. It was Salazar Slytherin. That was the joke. I don't know who that is. I know know Draco and, like, Malfoy. No, that's Draco and Malfoy. (laughs) Hello, I'm Draco. I'm Malfoy. His dad has long hair. Now, I know what you're wondering. What is a Saladin box? I can see you on the edge of your seat right there, Luke. Actually, I couldn't sit further back. Saladin boxes are a... Uh, a mecha- they were a mechanical replacement to the traditional yet far slower approach of turning the malt by hand. So An automaton. Exactly, yes. They basically got robots. Except it was the old times. So they would have been steampunky and cool. Well, I'd actually like to think they were more like the kind of like 1950s kind of like future... <laughs> Retrofuturism that you see. I wonder if they were named after like the people's favourites. They, they, they were Gizmo. <laughs> <laughs> they were just called Gizmo, all of them. It got really confusing because they didn't even give them number designations. It was just... Uh, designations it was gizmo get here basically the idea was with saladin boxes it was rotated by this mechanical system and you could create a lot more you could turn a lot more malt than you would by hand and it was far more efficient wait i've thought of an even more efficient way don't turn the malt but wait have one face in one way one face in the other way split those bad boys in half connect them done what i know what i mean picture us to picture two circles okay okay picture things in those circles mm-hmm one is the other way round. Now rotate. So one's now upside down. Which one, left or right? Right, right. Mine, mine, mine are up and down, though. Does that make a difference? No, right. Circles facing forwards. Oh, no, mine were, mine were top and bottom. No, that's, uh, imagine an egg. Oh, <laughs> that's not a circle. Basically, the Saladin box enabled them to increase their capacity, which was a good thing, because actually, they, they eventually, basically, at the height of their time, needed 10 of these machines to turn all their required malt. They got that kind of, like, successful with distillery. That's a phenomenal amount of malt they were they were malting. By the 70s, Tamdu was still growing at a phenomenal rate, so much so that they also had to add four new stills in um, in as many years, apparently. And this kept was in order to keep up with demand without sacrificing your quality. All was going well for the distillery now, under the ownership of the Edrington Group, who own Macallan. I don't think we've talked about Edrington, but we could have. I'm looking to you the now. The problem is, we've covered so many subjects, and I'm just so knowledgeable as is, I don't know what... Oh, so you, do you want to take the wheel? Yeah. Sure. I'll sit back, kick it back, chill, chill out, relax. So as I was saying about the circle... <laughs> okay. So we'll, we'll stick with Edrington, I think. They own Macallan, and eventually the distillery was once again mothballed in 2009. Which is a few years ago now. I feel like if they mothballed the first time and opened a year later, you'd think they might be like, I no, we just mothballed it for 20 years last time. Oh, oh that's nothing in the world of whiskey, is it? Really? It's quite a long time to. <laughs> uh, 20 years and a blink of an eye for his old people. You'll understand one day. 
Fortunately, this would not remain the case for as long as the previous period, and Edrington sold the distillery to Ian McLeod Distillers in 2011, with production resuming one year later. So that would be 2012 for those keeping track of dates. I wasn't. I didn't. I haven't known the single date's been mentioned. Just yet. remember that you've got five facts at the end of this. Yeah, they're going to be rough, and uh, it's going to be a lot of none. It's Ian McLeod who still own the distillery today. They also own the Glengoyne Distillery, which I know we talked about because we reviewed Glengoyne 12 last season, as well as Rosebank, which was a closed distillery in their reopening. Um, it's a sorely missed one from the Lowlands, and they will be bringing it back. I Ian like Mc the name of them. What, Ian McLeod? Rosebank or... Rosebank. That's on the other side of Speyside. There's Speyside and Rosebank. No. Rosebank's in the Lowlands. Uh, which is the other side of something. No one really knows how maps work. They also release numerous independent bottlings and blends as well. Yeah, I believe we did cover that back in Season 1 again with, with Glenn Goyne, so I won't hash over that all over again. We're back to Season 1. I know, right? Oh, those naive youths. Wow. We were... More consistent, though. Really? There was a good consistency period after I episode 5. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, okay, we kind of goofed it a little bit. One of the great things about Ian McLeod is their commitment to renewable and sustainable environmental practices, actually. Nice. Um, it is. You love to see it. <laughs> they recently updated all their packaging for both the Glengoyne and Tandu brands um, to not only be fully recyclable, but they're also made from recycled materials. It now comes in boxes. It does. You've got to drink it real quick. <laughs> it doesn't come in cartons. It's not like milk. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this is certainly a change I expect, or at least certainly hope, we'll see across the industry on a far greater scale. A lot of other distilleries are starting to go this way, but there's still, not hesitant so much, but delay, I suppose, in, in becoming fully recyclable. Because a lot of the packaging, you've got the, the kind of metal tins on, or, or sometimes they'll have that very kind of sparkly metal fonts on things, which don't always recycle, apparently. Not so much black plastic is a problem, though, in, in the industry, so that's nice. Now, Tandu as a spirit is definitely bigger bodied than Glengoyne, which is one of the gentlest single malt uh, Scotch whiskies available, it really is. However, when you compare the whisky to the likes of Glendronic, the spirit is still quite light, um, as well as being very, it's slightly peaty. The peat level is negligible though, I will say that, and it, it is kind of there in the background, but it's worth bearing in mind. Tamdu exclusively use ex-Spanish sherry oak ex-Spanish sherry casks, uh, usually Oloroso. The wood that they use tends to be um, American oak, actually, which creates a slightly lighter balance to it, but they almost always use, in fact, to my knowledge, they always use Oloroso sherry casks. So a nice, rich kind of... I know Oloroso sherry. Hmm, yeah, I know you do. You smell it every time you smell anything, apparently. Uh, You're like, mmm, this cup of tea. Sherry? I put some chai syrup in my tea. Ooh, how did it go? Did it work or not? I was curious. It's a little on the sweet side for me. Mm. Um, I think it'd be good. In flapjack. I think... Oh, probably, actually, yeah. Mm. I was looking at that syrup, I was like, mm, that could make some it, good you, flapjack. It wouldn't work as the... Uh, no, you're not using my syrup. I'll tell you what, you can pay me for it. The range from the distillery offers a spectacular view of their whiskies and cask management as well, showcasing the high quality you come to expect from them. The 12-year-old is their standard release. This replaced the previous 10-year-old expression back in 2018, and the step up in quality is impressive, I have to say. They add It adds this lovely kind of bit more extra depth and richness to it. It's also the whiskey we're reviewing, so I will stop there 
for now. Next is the Tamdu 15 year old which was released about the same time. It is, I won't lie, it is a welcome addition. For as long as I can remember beforehand it was, you could only find kind of the distillery owned bottles at the age of 10 unless you went to independent bottlings. And so to get something of that age, it's really nice to try Tamdu at an oldest kind of stage. However, they have limited stock, which is why you couldn't get it before. And so it's a somewhat limited release and they can't sell it all without kind of uh, ruining our reserves. This means that you do have to charge a little bit more because it's a limited release. And when you compare it to equivalent 15 year olds in, in the kind of ranges of other distilleries, it does seem like a step up. The 15 is really rich and indulgent. It's similar to the 12, but with that bit extra depth and body. But most importantly to me, it's the it has a far longer finish on it. It really does. It lasts it lasts for ages. It's great. After the 15, we're on to the Tamdu Batch Strength, which is one of those whiskies you keep coming back to, especially this time of year, or at least I do anyway. It's got this lovely range of rich fruits and winter spices. The selection of casks that they use for the batch strength, and to be honest, I really nearly did review this whiskey. It was really tough to decide on. They they actually use a, a, a far more high percentage of first fill ex oloroso sherry casks. So when you have more of the first fill in, you're getting the most intense flavors out of those casks right from the get-go. They also, they will only bottle it when they deem it's ready. That's why it's called batch strength. They It's not so much at a certain age, it's when that batch is ready. So sometimes it'll be younger, sometimes it'll be older. But it's always this really nice, high quality, I, I think it's a great one to try. There's a new release that's come out relatively recently as well called um, Distinction. The idea behind this, it, it's a limited bottling and it highlights and showcases some of their wonderful, again, this American oak Oloroso sherry casks and just how much they can, um, how much the casks add to the flavour of the whiskey. After this, you start to hit the far more kind of special releases. I know they've done a cigar malt recently as well. Not to be confused with Dalmore's cigar malt, but again, the idea is that it pairs very well with cigars, as many sherry cask whiskies do. They also have some travel retail exclusive ones, which I've yet to try because I haven't flown anywhere recently. But moving back to Tamdu 12, as I mentioned, this replaced the standard 10-year-old release a few years ago. I really think it's well worth a try. The maturation of the 12 is similar to the 10 that was. It uses this combination of first fill and refill ex Oloroso sherry casks, but I think it's got a little bit more first fill in it than the 10-year-old used to. Don't quote me on that, I could well be wrong, but it just feels, when I went from the 10 to the 12 a couple of years ago, I remember thinking, wow, this feels a lot richer, which is what leads me to believe they got a bit more of that first fill in. Now, one of the things to remember is, the reason why they use first fill and refill X sherry casks as opposed to just first fill is, Tamdu, like I said earlier on, it's a lighter spirit. And if they used exclusively first fill casks, that give you all of that influence, you would be starting to overpower your spirit and you'd lose some of the nuances that make your distillery what it is. That being said, they do it very well and they get a balance. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't feel wishy-washy, I'll say that. A lot of the differences I find between Tamdu and Glendronach more come down to Glendronach's body being able to take a bit more of the sherry cask influence and they use a lot of Oloroso sherry casks in that as well as the Pedro Jimenez. And that's what gives you that kind of sweetness when you're doing the like for like 12 year old comparison, which, is something I have done before, purely for research. Now, sherry casks in general, they're great for giving you those luxurious, rich fruits and soft spices. But if you're not careful, like I say, they will overtake the spirit's characteristics. It's bottled at 43%. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's just that's how just, it is. That's, that's just me talking to myself when I'm editing, to be honest. That's what I think. I, you know, I, w <laughs> I would happen to agree that the exact thing I said would also be the thing I said, yeah. It's bottled at 43% as we covered and they don't chill filter so you retain all the natural oils in the finished products uh, and you find yourself with this lovely kind of spectacular drink. Now for the tasting section. Sherry. 
No, there's no sherry cask use whatsoever in this. Of course, there's sherry cask users we've been talking about the whole episode. Can you tell me what kind of sherry casks you, you think they used? Oh, Oloroso. Mm. Would you, what kind of wood do you think they used? Brown. <laughs> I've been going on about ex-American white oak all this episode, but you, you go on about brown wood all you want. This particular one, though, they won't let, it's a lesser known secret, they won't let you know. Yeah, it smells like alcohol. Like, you, you look you looked at me for a second there, like you were really expecting me to pick up on absolutely anything. You see, um, the legs, they run quite fast and they're quite close together compared to some other whiskies. So again, you're getting that feel that it is a lighter whiskey. The, no, the, the colour is quite golden on the nose. One of the things I, I do kind of get in the background sherry. is... Sherry. Yeah, there's definitely some kind of... Sherry? Are you mocking me? No. I mock never. me to my face, you I coward. Did. Mm, well, it's, it's hard to mock you to the face and keep your voice going towards the microphone. I'll tell you what, I'll slap your face. You get that lovely rich fruit, but particularly with Tamdu, there's almost a kind of ginger bready kind of side to it. Now on the taste, it's a little sweet at the start, almost there's a little bit of almost a brown sugariness, and then those fruits start to build. And on, on the finish, it really is uh, quite an oaky spice kind of comes through. It's um, It really is quite a dry finish compared to the start, and I, I, I kind of love it for those stages it goes through. So yeah, I, I think that concludes the tasting section. Five facts. One, they mothballed for 20 years. Two. Oh, points for if you can tell me what years they mothballed between. No. <laughs> they mothballed again for another 20 years later down the line until... They mothballed until 2014 at one point. 2012. 20-something. They mothballed between 2009 and 2011. I was so close. They decided to try something more innovative and wild. They got automaton stills. Salad inboxes. So close. You can't go down your own goof and make it a fact. I'm sorry. It, I, I'm classic and kind that one because I've not been here for most of the episode. Uh, also, sorry, also of note is they were using salad inboxes for quite a long time later before they got rid of them. Um, even though it was an old-fashioned design, they did still keep them going. This isn't about you. Um, they use Oloroso sherry casks. So American oak casks and sherry casks. You can't have two casks for the same cask. I'll give you one fact. You let me have multiple sides so like the different casks is deeper. Okay, uh... Because no, it's the same cask. You're just giving me two different aspects of the same uh, cask. Oh, I didn't know that. How do they blend them? What they do is they, they get take the a oak panel from each. They get the oak from America. They ship it over to Spain, which they then use to to mature Oloroso sherry. In, and then when they finish with it for the sherry, Doyle. To... There's someone called Doyle. No, I mean there's no doubt there is someone called Doyle, but not in this episode. D- Dale. It's like a regular first name and then a cool second name. Yeah, so that's five. Um, no, it's not. Please <laughs> let me have Dale. There was a name. There was a name, and he began with a D or a B. It was his second name, and his first name was Boring. Ah, yes, Boring Boyle, you know. <laughs> Maybe just try and find another fifth fact, I don't think you're going to get this one. Just the only one I can think of. <laughs> That's the one I'm closest to, so this isn't great for me. Uh, someone helped open the it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone was involved with some stage of the distillery. There was a person who's a person and a human being, and they helped open it. I think you're on about the architect, Charles Doig. Yeah, 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 that's it. What's funny is at one point you very nearly said Dal Ewan, which I'd have let slide because that was the distillery he worked on where he got the pagoda roof. Oh, pagoda. 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 G- g- I'm, I'm saying it with a G. Pagoda. 
Not the last time though. The other one before no, that, you said Pakoda. Pakoda. The cast customer actually swoops off the Pakoda roofs to somersault into different countries. Well, I imagine he kind of he, he kind of um, broods on top of them like Batman does on gargoyles. Uh, he doesn't have time to breathe now that he's a family man. Well, this has been Cascad. Thank you for listening. I am your resident cask whisperer, Lorbit aficionado, Luke. With me is my brother, Jordan. I don't really know what he does. I, I don't know what I add to the team. I really don't. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever podcasting platform you listen to. It really does help us, and more importantly, may lead others to discovering and listening to this show and finding out the cool cask whisperer lore, and also about whiskey, I suppose. I'd also like to thank Adrian and Allison of the Weed Dram Whiskey Shop. They have lots of whiskeys, and they know their stuff. So thanks, guys. Their website is www.weedram.co.uk. And now... For what? Last, 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 last. Editing, editing, editing. Good. And now for one last editing goof. Ba-dum-bum-tsh. Pakoda?